This is a Sunday talk by Joel. It's called, There is Only One Enlightenment, recorded on our first annual Enlightenment Celebration 8-11-91 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Today we're celebrating Enlightenment Day, and that raises the question, what is enlightenment? Perhaps the most difficult question to raise uh, in a talk, but we'll take a stab at it. I want to read you something here. This is an account of enlightenment. Then I sought solitude, and here I soon became very melancholy. I would sometimes fall to weeping and feel unhappy without knowing why. Then for no reason all would suddenly be changed, and I felt a great inexplicable joy, a joy so powerful that I could not restrain it, but I had to break into song a mighty song with only room for one word, joy, joy, joy. And I had to use the full strength of my voice. And then in the midst of such a fit of mysterious and overwhelming delight, I became a shaman, not knowing myself how it came about. But I was a shaman. I could see and hear in a totally different way. I had gained my komanak, my enlightenment, the shaman light of brain and body. And this in such a manner that it was not only I who could see through the darkness of life, but the same light also shone out from me, imperceptible to human beings, but visible to all the spirits of the earth and sky and sea. And these now came to me and became my helping spirits. This is an account by an Eskimo shaman named Ayua and it was given to a Norwegian or Swedish-Scandinavian explorer around the turn of the century. So this particular account isn't all that ancient, but the culture is ancient. And we, from what we know about uh, the evolution of human societies, we may take this in a certain sense as an ancient, ancient account of enlightenment, a shamanic account of enlightenment. And we have no reason not to believe that our most distant forebearers in the Paleolith in the caves had this sort of experience. So enlightenment is not a new experience. Enlightenment is always the same. From the very beginning, from the earliest accounts we have, it's always exactly the same. This is a very precise account in many ways, even though it's put in terms of a, a worldview that we no longer hold. First of all, notice this that he first of all goes into solitude and he's overcome with sorrow and melancholy, despair. This is the dark night of the soul in Christian terms. It's almost essential on a spiritual path that people go through this period of sort of reaching bottom. And at this, uh, this nadir of experience of sorrow and unhappiness, of really confronting suffering, of being willing to confront all the sufferings of the world, of giving up any romantic ideas or whatever ideas you have about uh, getting out of it. Out of this is born this sudden, mysterious joy. Sudden, overwhelming. That takes away the will in a certain sense. He describes as he had to sing. He didn't sit there and say, oh, I'm happy, I think I'll sing. He had to sing. And it was a song without any word except this one word, joy. And then he says, interestingly enough, 
And then in the midst of such a fit of mysterious and overwhelming delight, I became a shaman. Not knowing myself how it came about, but I could see and hear in a totally different way. I had gained my kwamanek, my enlightenment. Now, it's not the joy. It's not the bliss. This enlightenment happens in the midst of this. But there's something different about this. And it happens instantly. And it doesn't, there's no cause for it coming about. He doesn't know how it came about. It just happens. It comes about, and then he can hear and see in a totally different way. He says, I gain my kumanak, my enlightenment, the shaman light of brain and body, and this in such a manner that it was not only I who could see through the darkness of life. Remember the, the Christian image of, uh, I see a, a, through a glass darkly, but when that which is perfect comes, I, I'll see clearly. It's ancient analogies, ancient images used. The darkness, the cloudiness of life, the doubt and the unknowing and the uh, despair and the mystery. And suddenly he sees through all this with this shaman light. But it's not only he who sees but the light also shone out from me, imperceptible to human beings. And what a difficult time Gnostics have of trying to make people understand what's happened. But visible to all the spirits of the earth and sky and sea. That's beautifully put. Suddenly the world is seen to be spiritual. That the sky and the sea and the earth and everything all shares this light. It's all one light. It's not one way. He sees it coming in, and the world sees it coming out. This is a way of saying that the subject and object have disappeared, the division. This is a way of describing this unity, this spiritual unity of all things. So it's not just a naive sort of, uh, this poor old uh, primitive person there, you know, sitting out in the rocks or something, and something weird happened to him. It's quite precise. He knows exactly what he's talking about. Any Gnostic will read this and say, I know exactly what he's talking about. From any culture, it's the same. There we start with this seminal germ description, some idea of what this is like. It's interesting that he knows precisely the time and place. They didn't have calendars and so forth. But he, didn't, he doesn't describe, oh, well, I followed my initiation ceremonies, and, and somewhere along the line I gained these powers and whatnot. There are magicians and priests and sorcerers and so forth in even primitive shamanic cultures who do, from their point of view, gain powers and magical spells and whatnot. They're not shamans. What distinguishes the shaman and the shamaness, by the way, and, and in these cultures there was shamans and shamanesses, didn't matter. What distinguishes them is this sudden, instantaneous transformation, this enlightenment. It's not a gradually learning how to manipulate the powers of the earth and sky and sea and so forth. It's seeing. Seeing something. Seeing not with the visual eye, but seeing with the, the eye of the soul, the inner eye, the eye of the spirit, if you like. And this happens suddenly. And all through history, when you find personal accounts, if they know the hour or the, the date, you'll find that recorded. 
Kuaining, who's the famous father and founder of Zen Buddhism, describes he was in a marketplace. He was a woodcutter, a wood seller. And he heard somebody reciting the Diamond Sutra, famous Buddha Sutra. And suddenly his mind opened. It wasn't something gradual. He just heard the Diamond Sutra and his mind opened. <laughs> Teresa Vavila talks about, after all these spiritual experiences, which are different, consolations and visions, and she describes them very well. She's a very astute observer of the psychology of the spiritual path. But she says, finally, the union of the soul with God is something that's communicated instantaneously. Ramana Maharshi, who's a contemporary or Hindu Gnostic of this century, describes very precisely, came home from school one day, put his books down on a table, and within the space of about 20 minutes had this death experience, which we'll come back to. It's very important in these descriptions. He lay down on the floor, and he knew he was going to die, and he saw his body die, and it was carried off and burned on a funeral pyre. And what was left was nothing but pure consciousness. Suddenly, like that, it happened. Uh, my teacher, Dr. Franklin Merrill Wolf, described his enlightenment, and he would talk about it as the recognition occurred on August 7, 1939. It's interesting now the way he put it, though. He said, the recognition occurred. And he was very careful in his speech and his writings and tapes to try to always refer to it as the recognition or the realization. And never my recognition or my realization. Now, in other traditions, uh, in Zen, for instance, people talk about my Satori. There's a use for that. There's one little story of a monk who comes to a master and wants him to communicate his satori, his truth. And the master says, no, my truth is my truth. And even if I could tell it to you, if I told it to you, it wouldn't be your truth. And the, the seeker was very disappointed and upset with this and, and very stubborn. So he said, well, damn it, I'm going to go off and find my truth. And he did. He went off and he meditated for 10 years and he got enlightened. And then he realized that he had the best teacher in the world. And he built a temple to his teacher. His only communication with this teacher was this teacher denying him any teachings, saying, no, I'm not going to give you my truth. You have to find your truth. There's a value of putting it this way. We're celebrating this particular Sunday, it's the 11th, but it's the closest Sunday to my enlightenment, which was August 13th, 1983. But truly speaking, there is no my enlightenment or your enlightenment or his enlightenment, or her enlightenment. There's only the recognition. It's the same enlightenment. Always the same enlightenment. It appears to be different enlightenments. If we look through uh, history, there are different descriptions. Ayu's description, and Huining's description, and all these different descriptions. And so it appears like all these different people had their own little enlightenment. But this is an appearance from the point of view of delusion. We could take a, an analogy for this, and this is just an analogy. Imagine a sun with a veil over it. This is a common analogy. Somehow 
The truth is veiled. There's a curtain. There's a, a, a dark glass that separates you from truth. And periodically, this veil is rent. And a light flashes through, and then it closes up. And then go along in history, and another rent happens, and a light flashes through, and then the veil closes up. Somebody from the dark side of the curtain says, oh, look at all these lights flashing through history. All these different lights have been flashing in. But from the other side of the curtain, there's only one sun, and it never flashes at all. It's just there. And that's another very common analogy and metaphor. In fact, the whole idea of enlightenment, which even Ayu talks about, the shaman light. He doesn't mean a sensible light. This is an analogy. It's one of the most universal analogies in all mystical traditions, this light, the light of consciousness, the light of awareness, the light of seeing. But there's really only one light behind this veil. So there's really only one enlightenment. Now, this raises a question, if we're going to pursue this analogy, and it's only an analogy a little farther, what is this veil? What constitutes this curtain? It's the veil of form. It's the veil of multiplicity. It's the illusion that the world is made up of many forms and many things and many beings and many people. The ultimate linchpin of this curtain of forms, which is a mixed metaphor here, what would you say? The, the uh, fundamental thread that's woven through this is the form of I and other self and world. From this distinction, all other distinctions arise. From the belief that you are a separate self in a world that is other, then arises the belief, well, there are lots of others, and they're all separate from each other. This is a kind of a projection. And when this rent happens, it's as though just this one form, this key form of self and world, is suddenly vanishes. And then there's nothing but consciousness itself. That's the light. So it's useless to talk about the uh, degrees of people's enlightenment uh, and people compare different teachers and so forth and wonder who's the most enlightened and all this. There are no degrees of enlightenment. It makes sense in a relative sense to talk about uh, Gnostic flashes. One can have a glimpse through this curtain. And the curtain can close up for you, so to speak. But the light is the light. To have a glimpse is very, very valuable and important. And sometimes people dismiss that. They say, well, well, the person just had a Gnostic flash. You should have such a Gnostic flash. It changes your whole life. For the first time, you've had a taste of what the mystics are talking about. I could say, God help you if this happens to you, because you'll be stuck, you'll be addicted forever. Beautifully put to me once by 
uh, a Catholic friend of mine who said, once you've had a taste of God, you can never be cured of him. There can be degrees of this. But the light itself, there are no degrees of. And to have the whole curtain ripped apart is simply just to have the whole curtain ripped apart. The veil drops. The dark glass becomes clear. And in a certain sense, you could say it's an experience. But in another sense, it's not an experience. It's not an experience because there is no one to experience it. You could say, from then on, there is only experience, but no experiencer. So there's form and there's light, but there's no one to experience this form and this light. And the form, you could say, is the light, is made of the light. Is a form of the light, it's not a form of something else. The very curtain that was a veil is now seen to be just a form of the light. It no longer acts as a veil. It's, this is not a philosophy. And some people read the accounts of mystics and Gnostics. And they try to judge it the way they judge a philosophy. And sometimes mystics and Gnostics can get pretty philosophical. They're trying to communicate to people who value and trust reason. They're trying to show that this is not irrational. It transcends reason, but it doesn't contradict reason. But the key thing here is that it is not a philosophy. This isn't a matter of speculation. Ayua didn't speculate about, well, the world must be made out of light and there must be spirit beings and whatnot. He's simply reporting what he saw in some sort of language that will be somewhat intelligible hopefully, to the people around him. But truly speaking, it cannot be communicated in language. And so we find all through the literature and all through the history of mysticism and mystics, over and over again, this refrain, it cannot be put into words. It is incomparable. Incomparable is not just a fancy way of saying it's so wonderful. There's nothing to compare it to. There is literally nothing to compare it to. There is nothing outside it. Our language and descriptions depend on comparison. If you've never tasted uh, a mango, for instance, I might say, well, it's something like a cantaloupe, but a little tartar. You see, I have to use something that's different from the mango that you're familiar with, and then I compare it to that. But there's nothing that's different from this light. So what's there to compare it to? Mystics say it's indescribable. They mean that literally, not just uh, because it's so wonderful. Oh, it's just indescribable. If you went down to Baskin Robbins and had the flavor of their month, you might come back and say, oh, it was just indescribable. That has that quality about it, but it, it means quite literally it is indescribable. Words will not contain it. No tongue has ever soiled it, is a quote that Joseph Campbell takes from, I don't know, the Vedas or the Upanishads. No tongue has ever soiled it. Beautiful, beautiful way of putting it. A great uh, 
Indian mystic, Akha Mahadevi. She was a follower of Shiva's, and the great uh, symbol or image of Shiva is the linga. Maybe you've seen that stone, sort of an oblong stone like this. She refers to this in, in her poem. And this, uh, there are a slew of poems we have from her about the path, about the search for Shiva and union with Shiva. And many of them are laments, just like Ayu's. This feeling of sorrow and separation and despair and whatnot. And then there are glimpses where she feels this connection with Shiva. And then she loses it. And then her despair is twice as bad as it was before. I think I said this a couple weeks ago. People like the bhakti path. A lot of people think, oh, I'd rather take the bhakti path and do all this meditation and so forth. And often because they have a very romantic idea. They think it's all going to be bliss and wonderful and devotion and they're going to wander around and uh, cut flowers and worship the divinity. The bhakti path is the most painful path. It's the path of the heart. If you're not prepared to have your heart broken, don't go on the bhakti path. Read the bhakti literature. It's all about heartbreak. If you think you have trouble with, with spouses or human lovers, God's going to give you much more trouble. But then finally, here's what she says. After this very bhakti sorts of poems, I do not say it is the linga. I do not say it is oneness with the linga. I do not say it is union. I do not say it is harmony. I do not say it has occurred. I do not say it has not occurred. I do not say it is you. I do not say it is I. After becoming one with the linga, I say nothing, whatever. Very pure expression of this. Except, of course, for the fact that she did say something, didn't she? She just wrote a poem about it. This is, of course, mystics are always doing this. They're saying, I can't say anything about it. But then they've already said something. Sometimes we uh, take it to be a silence. And silence is, again, one of the universal images. The great silence at the heart of the world. But again, ultimately, this is just an analogy. It breaks down. Ultimately, there's nothing better about silence than words or sound. We fall into dualism when we take even these high descriptions to be ultimate teachings. We emphasize things like silence because our problem usually isn't silence. Our problem usually is words. And if it's not our mouths flapping, it's our thoughts flapping all the time. So there's a heavy emphasis on silence. But it's a remedial thing. It's not teaching any ultimate value. God is no more silent than God is speaking. The whole universe is the word of God, the speech of God. Sometimes it's better to turn to poetic images. If we try to describe it rationally, or we try to compare it to experiences that we know, or we try to carry these analogies out in a logical way, they always fail. More universal, in terms of the history of uh, mystical teachings, are more, if you like, poetic sort of analogies that are obviously not to be taken literally. One of the oldest is death and rebirth, death and resurrection. 
there was a prophecy around Ayu's uh, birth because he was born with the uh, umbilical cord around his neck and he almost died at birth. So when they brought him out of his mother's womb, they consulted the local shaman and the local shaman looked at him or whatever and he said, he was born to die, yet he shall live. Interesting. This kind of uh, rings a bell, doesn't it? Isn't this the theme of Jesus? What does this mean? In all the descriptions of shamanic initiation, one of the primary keynotes that, that shows that it is a shamanic initiation is this idea of death and rebirth, dismemberment. And the descriptions are graphic. The shaman goes down to a cave, and there's a spirit shaman who chops him up and strips off all his flesh off his bones and boils his bones in a pot and then takes them out and then puts them all back together and gives him new flesh and new organs, spiritual organs and spiritual flesh. Or in Australia, the shaman takes the initiate out uh, into the bush and chops them up and opens them up and stuffs them full of crystals because crystals are considered solidified light. They come from the celestial realm. He takes out all his organs and puts all these crystals in. In many Eskimo traditions, the prospective shaman goes out to a, an island or a cave or someplace and gets eaten by a bear. And they describe what happens. The bear comes and chomps them up uh, and then one description from the shamanic voices, I've forgotten who it was, the guy describes how the bear chomped him up, and amazingly it didn't hurt until the bear chomped his heart. Interesting. The wound in the heart, this is, again, a Christian symbol. You read Julian of Norwich, she prayed for a wound in the heart. Untying the knots of the heart is a classic yogic symbol. You see what a deep... Uh, a deep current, these symbols and these images run through this. This whole idea of death and resurrection, dismemberment. So this is exactly what the Christian myth is. The Christian myth in that sense is nothing but a shamanic myth. Jesus is crucified and rises again. And Jesus' whole teaching is, in order to have eternal life, you must die and be reborn. The Sufis have a saying, die before you die. What dies here? What is being talked about? And why is death and resurrection such a powerful metaphor? Because it's so radical. What dies is the sense of self, of a separate self. It's that radical a transformation. A lot of people think of the spiritual path as somehow enhancing the self. The self's going to acquire more powers. The self's going to become happy, happier. The self's going to do this or that. Or the self is going to live eternally. The self doesn't live eternally. The self is what has to die. As Teresa Avila says, she uses the, the idea of a silkworm and the metaphor of a silkworm that transforms into a butterfly that goes into a cocoon and then comes out a butterfly. And she says... This, make no mistake, my daughter, she's writing to her sisters in the, in the order, the, this silkworm has to die in order for the butterfly to be born. The silkworm does not grow wings. The silkworm dies and a butterfly is born. Another common analogy is dream and awakening, to wake up from a dream. Here's one from the Upanishads. 
He's talking about Brahman. He comes to the thought of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who imagine he can be attained by thought. He is unknown to the learned and known to the simple. He is known in the ecstasy of an awakening which opens the doors of life eternal. The ecstasy of an awakening. And, and particularly in Eastern traditions, is this comparison of awaking from a dream. That this life led on this side of the curtain is like a dream. And just the way we wake up from a dream, if you're in the midst of a dream, it seems very real to you. Let's say you're in a nightmare. And one of these shamans is pursuing you with a hatchet to chop you up and boil your bones, and you're trying to get away. You're looking for a hiding place, and you encounter other people in a dream. You don't know whose side they're on. And it all seems very real. Have you ever had a nightmare? It can be very real. And the solution of the nightmare is not something you do within the dream itself. The solution of the nightmare is to simply wake up and say, oh, it's a dream. And again, this is a good analogy because it's one of the uh, most common experiences most people have of this sort of radical shift in consciousness. The difference from going from a dream world to the waking state is somewhat comparable here. In this sense, this whole world disappears. Not in a literal physical sense. But the, the misreading of this whole world, the metaphorical world that we construct for ourselves, all that disappears. And so it's like waking from a dream. So the mystics uh, is someone who is awake, awakened and whose job is to awaken others. And you'll find this through all the traditions. And finally, one of the most beautiful and common descriptions is a melting. And I want to read you just two here. One is from Shankara, who is, of course, a great Hindu mystic. And he says, uh, The ocean of Brahman is full of nectar, the joy of the Atman. The treasure I have found there cannot be described in words. The mind cannot conceive of it. My mind fell like a hailstone into the vast expanse of Brahman's ocean. Touching one drop of it, I melted away and became one with Brahman. Okay. India, 7th century, give or take a few hundred years. Teresa Vavila, Christian, Spanish, 17th century. Never read Shankara, I guarantee it. But here it is like rain falling from the heavens into a river or a spring. There is nothing but water there, and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which fell from the heavens. Or it is as if a tiny streamlet enters the sea from which it will find no way of separating itself or as if in a room there were two large windows through which the light streamed in. It enters different places, but it all becomes one. This idea of the sense of the self melting away and dissolving that rigid form that stands at the center of our world, the worlds that we live in, the worlds that we construct for ourselves.
So these are some of the ways Gnostics have tried to describe enlightenment, tried to describe that which cannot be described. So when we celebrate our enlightenment day here, and we pick this day to remind ourselves not about individuals' enlightenment, but about the one and only enlightenment. And in a certain sense, you can take it this way. It's a day to remember your own enlightenment. It's a day to remember what all this is all about. So this is why today I didn't want to start with a meditation, because I thought now what we could do is meditate. And don't today focus on your breath or anything like that. Just let your mind try to feel into what this would be like. Remember these descriptions of death and resurrection, of melting away, of awakening from a dream. Just try to listen to your own inner enlightenment. Then afterwards we'll have questions and comments and a brief discussion before we move on. If you would like to follow our program, Turn off your player and meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. Then turn the tape back on for a question and answer session, which immediately follows. So, does anybody have any comments or questions? Without doing a meditation that has specific instructions, um, I allowed a lot of spaciness to, to just be there. And, and I actually, I, I may have fallen asleep a couple of times, just moments. And uh, some of those times, there were a, a lot of um, daydreams, or maybe I was asleep, I'm not sure. And coming out of that was really interesting. It usually happened kind of uh, quickly. Suddenly I'm awake, and I'm looking at the floor, and all the thoughts that were there before, oh, that was just a dream. Or that was just uh, thinking about um, another day, something that will happen. And I wondered if that is a useful technique or a, something to, well, if, if that's useful to practice sitting like that, to recognize the need to wake up in that in that very way, is that or is that a completely different kind of waking up? Yes and no, a different kind of waking up. It's the ultimate waking up, but it's not unakin to what you're just experiencing, and it is very useful to notice this. To sit, if you want to just sit this way and and sort of purposely let your mind drift, and then notice where it goes to and what happens when you uh, come back, and particularly what you notice is very important. That, that little world that you created for yourself in thoughts just went poof. That's very much like exactly what happens. Now, you shouldn't do this as a substitute for doing the formal meditation practices which develop the concentration that allows you to start having these subtle observations. The more you do the formal meditation practices, the more sharp the mind becomes and the more the mind sees this. In fact, what you just described is something that happens to everybody 
all the time in and out of the day. We sitting someplace on a bus and we drift off and then, you know, our stop comes and we jump up and we're back to where we are. We just never notice it. We never noticed what's going on. We never noticed that we're creating, projecting these little worlds and that they vanish and they go poof. Go to enlightenment. It's like going to light and you come back out of it into a form or stages into it. There's no going in or coming out. That's why it's not like an experience. Let me ask you this question. If there's no one really there, who would go in and come out of enlightenment? The individual form itself. But then this is the whole point. This is what I'm trying to communicate. It's the individual that melts away. It's the individual that dies. So you would see light everywhere? Well, who's the you that's seeing the light? Notice this. This is a very good question here, you see, because this is the way our minds habitually think. But truly speaking, if you read, for instance, Teresa of Avila's description of it's like the streams that run down to the sea and the rain that falls into the ocean and it just becomes one with the ocean, then who's there to come in and out of enlightenment? There's no one there to come in and out of enlightenment. And in fact, there was never anyone at all to come in and out of enlightenment. And therefore, uh, teachers like Ramana Maharshi say things like, uh, bondage and delusion themselves are the delusion. The only one that bondage and delusion applies to is someone who's deluded. So what you discover is that you don't exist. You might say even what you discover is that no such thing as enlightenment exists. Not the way this is meant in a mundane sense, that all these mystics were psychotics and there's no such thing. There's no such thing as enlightenment because there's no such thing as any world to be enlightened from. Or enlightened out of. Can you say something about recognition? Recognition really means to recognize. To cognize something, and then recognition means to recognize it. And this carries in it the idea that what, what enlightenment is, is not finding something new out, but recognizing something you already know, or remembering something you already know, is another more common way of putting it. Remembering who you really are like waking from a dream. Let's say you, uh, you're dreaming that you're a soldier in a war, and you wake up and oh, you remember who you really are. Another small analogy, but a very interesting analogy to think about. We use the word recognition, for instance, let's say you're walking down Willamette Street, and somebody comes towards you, and you first think they're a stranger. Now, maybe they even look like a hostile stranger. It's late at night and you're walking down and this person's coming towards you. And suddenly you say, oh, Jim, gee, we haven't seen each other in 20 years. How are you? you know? Everything switches around in an instant because you recognize. Then, who was that stranger? What happened to the stranger? In one way, there was never really a stranger there. 
although for you, like being in a dream, that was a very real experience, this experience of a stranger, perhaps a threatening stranger. When you recognize the person, that whole experience vanished. That world vanished. The world of you being in a dark alley with a threatening stranger. That world vanished. And you recognize what was true all along. You were in a dark alley with an old friend. The light is like basically open and shines out, right? The light is a, an analogy here. Don't confuse it with, with no, I, I sensible that. light. This, I'm talking about analogies. The light, in that sense, yes, the light is always shining. And whether you see it or not, enlightenment's there. So, to me, another aspect is anything that closes you off is kind of closing you off towards light in a way. Because it draws you down to the path. Yes, and what does actually close you off? And if you watch your own experience, very good, you find it's your sense of self that closes you off. See, from your normal experience, when you're feeling relaxed, when you're feeling loving, when you're feeling open and warm, the sense of self starts to dissolve away, and you feel, you describe it, you feel light. And when you're feeling anxious and paranoid and fearful, what happens? You feel heavy. You feel closed in. You feel there's a self being threatened there. So in some ways it's like going down the wrong, wrong part of the path. You go back and go down the other part of the path. If you're talking about going down a wrong path, uh, it's simply this. We think that we can attain happiness through self-protection or self-enhancement. And so everything that we do solidifies the sense of self and actually increases our suffering without us knowing it. But when we turn that around and start behaving more selflessly, more giving, more yielding, uh, more charitably, then we find at first it seems very risky. It seems like you're throwing yourself open, you're vulnerable to the world, you're going to be taken advantage of and so forth. It seems very dangerous. But what you find is, rather miraculously, you start feeling better. Suffering starts to cease. And you just sort of naturally feel good. This is an experiment anybody can do in their lives. You just have to be very observant about your life. And this is what a, a spiritual path is about. And the more you do that, and sometimes you have to, you know, give yourself a little kick in the pants to get yourself doing this, the more you do it, the more you're convinced of your own experience. The more you realize that this whole strategy of trying to protect and enhance the self is a doomed strategy. It's futile. I mean, in the end, it doesn't work because the end that self is going to die anyway. The Tibetans have a wonderful expression about this. They say, uh, since you're going to lose it all in death, why not give it up now? Get rid of all the anxiety and worry about it. You're going to lose it anyway. You're dreading the day you're going to lose it. Well, get rid of all that dread. Just give it up now. Be free of it all. This is why all spiritual paths on the path of selflessness. I don't care what tradition or how it's put or wherever it is. Everything is always about selflessness. It's not that self is evil in the sense of, you know, some god declared this is evil. It's just the way the world works. It is the source of unhappiness and suffering. Okay, why don't we uh, break here and uh, then... Uh, 
we'll gather for our celebration over at Mike's house. We hang around here and then have some tea or whatever. 